I can get those bananas 10 different other countries. So, yeah, yeah I mean, what you're going to do is really going to drive me away from your economy. I'm just going to go and buy those bananas somewhere else. Whereas I can't get that supercomputer anywhere else. You know, you're one of the few sources to actually get it. So, and, and of course, in that case, you don't really need to do much to you know work your way up because that in and of itself is what's going to push you up to the top, that you have a, a good or a service that, uh, you know, and it can be a, a primary good too. It can be oil, uh, obviously, as we've seen. But that's one of the many things we talk about in economics class is that, you know, developing countries are screwed on so many levels. One of them being that they're selling, most of the time, they're selling things that I can get somewhere else. Welcome to Activist NNT, a podcast about real-world economics, including modern money theory, and how life changes when you discover it. I'm your host, Jeff Epstein. Today's part four of a six-part series with Texas Christian University economics professor and cowboy economist, John Harvey. Parts four through six are also the first main interview of Activist MMT hosted by someone other than me. Today's guest host is my own former guest, MMT researcher, Texas lawyer, and PMPecon.com author, Jonathan Wilson. Jonathan and I spoke in episodes 106 and 107. This three-part interview with John and Jonathan is wide-ranging and in-depth. They start by discussing the difficulties nations face managing their currencies, such as during major conflicts, natural or man-made disasters, and in the global south. They also discuss these things from the perspectives of holders of various currencies, both in and out of a country. In part two, they continue this conversation. In the second half of part two, John gives his extended thoughts on a recent critique of MMT by Drew Metz and Feister. Finally, in part three, they focus on some of the core assumptions and ideology of mainstream economists. They also discuss how some assume inflation to always be caused by too much demand and too high wages, despite clear empirical evidence that it's caused by something else. You'll find links to many resources, as mentioned by John and Jonathan, throughout these three parts in the show notes. And now, on to Jonathan's conversation with John Harvey. Enjoy. Yeah, definitely, if if she wants any advice on uh, the legal profession or just navigating in a sort of law firm like that, feel free to reach out. Well, that's really cool. Somebody just stopped at our house. Pardon me a second. Yeah, sure. Let's see. Okay, now the dog's going crazy and stuff, but we've got him locked in the other room with Melanie. 
But yeah, that was Alex. I just told her that you worked at Latham and Watkins and uh, went to Berkeley. So she's uh, freaked out. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, no, it's, a, it's a small world. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's your gaming chair, I assume. You have the whole sort of... Yes, yes, yes. Very nice. Cool. And what are you, what are you playing this weekend? Um, I've been playing Dying Light. Do you know that game? It this Dying Light 2 is out now. It's one of those games where, you know, on Steam where they have a sale and you end up with 10,000 games you never play? Yeah. So it was one of those ones that I'd started a long time ago and then got back into. So just been finishing that up. Um, I've been trying to find a game I can get into right now. I, I haven't really found one that's kind of pulled me in. Do you play games? A little bit. My wife and I usually play sort of like the story-rich adventure games. Like, uh, right. have you ever played like the Telltale series of games? Like they have no, the, uh-uh. maybe you heard of like some of them. So they did like a really good Batman game. They did a really good game that was based off of The Walking Dead. And oh, I have played The Walking Dead one, where it it's not like a because I mean I usually do shooters, first person, you know, shooters. Yeah. But it was just like sort of vignettes and you were, there was a little girl in the house by herself at the opening. Uh-huh. Uh, so, but I, I didn't get too far. And my daughter, Meg, the other daughter, uh, she's into gaming and she, she likes the story stuff more than I do. Cause I'll have to ask her like, you know, what was the background religion of that one race again? And so she'll have to explain the whole thing to me. So <laughs> she pays attention to all that. Yeah. But yeah, we play the, the, the story rich games. Cause you know, my wife being a writer, that's, you know, she cares about that more than I do. Um, right, right. Well, that's Meg. Meg doing the linguistic stuff. Well, her her undergraduate major was French linguistics and anthropology, so she likes the backstory. Um, yeah, and she could see herself, you know, working on games and doing the sort of background culture to to you know make the game actually come alive. Really, uh, did you play Dragon Age Origins? I uh, did. Yeah, I actually believe it or not, when I was in high school, I wrote a short article for GamesCritics.com about why Dragon Age Origins was so effective as, as a story-based game. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, I love that game. I almost cried at the end when my elf died because um, I, I gave my life at the end. There was a choice. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, and, I, and so I watched my funeral, uh, but that was a great, great game. And the Mass Effect series, have you played that? Yeah, um, I played uh, the, the three main ones. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I tried the, the, the Andromeda, and it was awful. I, I hated my, my uh, uh, NPC um, allies, I wanted them to die, uh, which is <laughs> not what you want for the game. So, but the first three were incredible. So, in fact, Meg got me onto that one because I had tried it. I started the first one and I got as far as the little train station to go somewhere. And I said, like, yeah, this is kind of boring. And then Meg told me how awesome it was. I said, All right, I'll go back and give it a shot. Uh, and the second one was one of the greatest ones I've ever played because you never knew if you were working for the good guys or the bad guys. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, yeah, that was really cool. We need an MMT computer game. You know, I saw on the MMT Facebook group, there was one guy who was thinking about making something around that. Yeah. Um, I don't know how far it went, though. Yeah, like, yeah. I don't yeah. know if he actually, you know, drew up a concept or anything or if he was right. just sort of just spitballing with people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's fun, too. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think it could be fun. Like, you could, I could either do it as like a board game or a card game or something, or you could do it as a full fledged computer game. They, they, right, right. Yeah, the, well, the question would be sort of, you know, what 
the goals would be like i imagine it wouldn't be sort of like a competitive sort of like risk style take over the world kind of thing yeah. more, it would probably yeah. more be like there are like like real outcomes that you want to achieve for your country and you have obstacles like you know related right. to foreign exchange or something and you're, you're you know you're trying to get everyone housed and yeah. medical care and stuff like that i guess what you could do is you could make it a, a war type thing and you're fighting neoclassical economics and uh, you know, <laughs> right-wing neoliberal politics you know and trying to figure out a way to uh you know win out like that i've designed several games um a couple of them are pretty good but my stock market game really sucks uh i know this because i asked meg to practice it with me and too much bookkeeping so i want to go back to it later but otherwise but yeah i'm uh I discovered my first war game when I was 14, and then that's why I never dated in high school. Um, yeah. Uh-huh, yeah. <laughs> Big into games. That's good. You said you designed, are they are they available right now? They No, I mean, they, they could be. It's not any big deal, but uh, I've got a baseball game I've put together that really works pretty well. And I've got, most of my stuff's military, though. I've got a couple of miniatures, um, one for World War II and one for post-World War II sets of rules. And I really like my rules a lot. But then, of course, there's things that in any game, I hate crafting, you know, for example, in, in a, and I do. I hate finding the recipes for crafting. I don't want to have to do that. So, But somebody else might enjoy that. So, you know, the things I've downplayed in my um, war game might be something that somebody else likes. Uh, for example, when you're doing armored combat, usually you're going to roll the dice like six times. Okay. Did I hit the tank? Okay, I did. Where did I hit the tank? Got to roll again. Okay, now did the you know did it actually penetrate the armor? I, I hate doing that. I used to, I was okay with it when I was in high school and had time, but now I, I rolled everything down to one roll. Hey, either the tank's knocked out or it's not. So, but but yeah, if somebody wanted the rules, I'd be happy to send them out. But that uh, that's my obsession. That's cool. We we might have to connect again after this call because I for a brief minute when I was at USC, I was a minor in uh, video game design and management. Really? Yeah, I had to drop the minor because for whatever reasons, I wasn't able to get all of the classes that I needed. They, they were yeah. they were undersubscribed, so they you know didn't have all of them. Right. Not because the video game program at USC was was bad or anything. Yeah. It was so good that most people wanted to major in it, and they had oh, all these classes no. that were made specifically for the people doing the minor. Right, that, right. You know, if there's only one person minoring, everyone else is majoring, then they can't have the class. Yeah, but, then they'll shut it down. Yeah, yeah. But no, that, that was it was a really cool experience. Um, but anyway, we can um, we can save that for, for part right, two right, right. maybe. But, uh, but let me reload my water real quick. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so why don't we... Um, so to get into the, the meat of what we're going to talk about today, All right. which for the listeners, we're going to talk about foreign exchange and neoliberalism and sort of how various underlying empirical assumptions about economics that are adopted by neoliberal economists sort of color how economic conversations take place. But... To begin with, why don't we start by talking about what your understanding is of what happened to the ruble and domestic inflation in Russia this year? 
Right, right. Yeah, no, I, um, there, there's a fantastic resource for kind of looking up a summary of what the exchange rate has done. And it's always three months behind, but it's still really good. Uh, and so the first place I went was to the New York Fed. They have a Treasury and, Fed, and Federal Reserve FX operations summary uh, every quarter. And, you know, honestly, this is one of the strange things about mainstream economics, um, you know, because you already suggested that some of the underlying assumptions, you know, absolutely guide the conversation and set the agenda. And there's a lot of things wrong with it. But when they stop and talk about what happened historically, it's usually not too bad. And so they just don't then, for some reason, incorporate that into any adjustment in the theory. So anyway, what, what they said there uh, made a great deal of sense is that early on, we had this massive collapse in the ruble, A, because the war sent lots of money to the, to the dollar as a safe haven currency, which happens every time there's some sort of you know, international incident, the dollar is seen as a safe haven. And then you know, on, on top of that, oil prices shot up. And uh, you know, so much of oil trade is denominated in dollars that that also drove the dollar up. So there was this initial huge spike I, I'm, I'm looking at here, which obviously we can't do on a podcast, but I'm looking at here the, um, uh, the exchange rate, rubles per dollar, and uh, it went from about, what, 75 on February 1st to you know, over 140 by about March. And so this was a you know, massive uh, depreciation. And then as far as the inflation, you know, in, in Russia, pretty much the same thing that's happening here. It drove up the prices of, of food, even though they have their own domestic oil, so do we. It still drives up the price. And on top of that, you've got, you know, potentially a reduction in the production of consumer goods during a period of war. And so you've got a reduction of supply. You know, all these things contributed to inflation. The one thing that saved the Russians uh, so far in terms of inflation is that the ruble did not stay at over 140 you know per dollar that it ended up coming back down again and this was a concerted effort on their part to make sure that you know they didn't end up with terrible inflation and capital flight away from the uh, ruble which they accomplished by saying things like if you're going to buy our oil you have to do you have to use rubles so I, I hate to use the word artificial here because the market system itself is artificial we made it up all right but but this sort of created an artificial or let's, let's put it this way a non free market demand for the ruble. They said, you know, you have to buy rubles to buy our oil uh, and our gas. And they put in strict capital controls. They have limited how much money Russians can, you know, convert into non-rubles. So all these things held the ruble up. And had it fallen as well, uh, that would have been, an, you know, yet another source of inflation as they found everything that was foreign to be more expensive. But that hasn't happened. And I don't know how long they can keep that up. That's, you know, it, it's really, I would suspect for a long time because, you know, now if this is the way the war is going to go for a while, they've held the ruble's value up pretty high for quite a while. I don't know that they, they need to do more than they're already doing to keep it where it is. Got it. So we, you mentioned how Russia, sorry, foreign buyers of Russian gas and oil have to buy them in rubles. That means they're opening accounts at Gazprom Bank, which is a privately owned bank, but how does the Russian government, how, how, how are they exerting control over the strength of the, of the ruble through a private owned bank exactly? That maybe we need a political science professor because <laughs> uh, I don't know exactly. I, I assume that uh, if, if, you know, um, if, if Putin wants it channeled through there and he holds all the purse strings and uh, power, 
then that's what we're going to do. So I don't suspect that's very difficult to pull off, even though it's a private bank. And I suspect it's in their best interest, too, that they're getting a good deal on the, uh, on the exchange rate. But I don't know specifically. I'd have yeah. to ask my friends in political science. I would assume that there's, you know, he's, there's some sort of arrangement, either unofficial or official, where he's telling Gazprom Bank, do not sell these. Right. Um, yeah. 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 Uh, you don't sell any, any rubles other than, you know, the ones that the transaction that we've approved, but I, right. I I'd love to sort of see the inner workings of, of how those incentive relationships are playing out. Yeah. Probably in a very scary way in some instances, but, um, uh, but I, I don't know exactly how they how they worked that part out of it. I was a political science major undergrad, but that was good lord almost forty years ago now. So I think my knowledge of of uh, politics is kind of outdated now. Yeah, we'll have to get a uh, sort of a Russian language legal specialist in to to shed some light on that. Right. I even took Russian because yeah. back then though it was the Cold War. So I was thinking about going into the foreign service. So I, I was taking Russian culture and Russian language and stuff like that. And But then economics caught me and I went that way instead. All right. All right. So we know that sort of them buying rubles at these accounts at Gazprom Bank is creating some demand for the ruble sort of at the point of transaction. But what about outside of that sort of small series of transactions? Are people in... Germany, for instance, who had rubles, you know, because of pre-war transactions with Russian business people selling their rubles at an inflated price to other people who were buying Russian gas. Apparently, there is some evidence that that's that's what's going on. Uh, first of all, the the actual volume of ruble trade is is way down. So, you know, one of the things you have to think about is that when we post a price. In the stock market or the currency market or whatever, I mean that's like the last transaction. You know, it's like the last transaction or the average transaction for the day, depending on which data series you look at. And if there wasn't much, if there wasn't much volume that day, then it could be based on very, very little trade. And, and apparently that that's the case. And there's also some evidence that the black market price for the ruble is is especially in Russia, not so much in the rest of the world, because in the rest of the world, then. Either, I assume, either you're holding on to your, well, I would be dumping my rubles right now with, with this really high price. And the, precisely as you say, there's going to be sufficient demand for quite some time, given that people are needed to buy oil and gas. But inside Russia, it, where people are wanting to dump the ruble, and uh, there's some evidence that the black market price is, is uh, you know, I don't know how much lower, but but lower than the price that's that you know being set in the market elsewhere. So... I wouldn't think so much Germans as much as Russians trying to get rid of their rubles. I see, because even though, sorry, even though Russians are plant are selling them for less than the official price, it's still better than it was three months ago when the value was shot down. They're still yeah. getting a return. Yeah. And I would assume this would be people's savings. Uh, obviously, not you know the money I'm going to use to go to you know uh, Kroger's, uh, whatever the Russian equivalent is. That, you know, that money, I need those rubles. I need those rubles to buy, you know, my, my groceries today. But any savings I've got, anything I'm holding, you know, in, in reserve, now I'm wondering, yeah, I wouldn't mind translating some of these into euros or dollars. Uh, but they're strictly limited in how much they're allowed to do that. So, uh, and, you know, officially. And so, uh, you know, on the black market, then, and again, we don't know. It's really, you know, those data aren't collected and, and uh, disseminated we're just guessing that this is what's going on from some, you know, anecdotal evidence. 
But the anecdotal evidence is that there are people in Russia trying to get rid of their at least some of their rubles off of the official uh, exchange rate, but they're having to accept something less. I see. And when did that, when did it, it, it sort of flip? Because it seems like, yeah, like we talked about, the ruble went down a lot and then it started going back up again. Do, right. you, do you attribute that decision by the Russian government to sort of force sales in ruble to some of that activity? Absolutely. Um, and I can give you a bit of a timeline here. As I say, we're on a podcast, but I have the, the chart right in front of me of the uh, dollar ruble um, exchange rate. And as I say, around oh February 19th, uh, what's the invasion? The 24th, I believe. Yeah, the 24th. And so on February 19th, it has marked on here, we have the, the about 78 rubles per dollar. And then by March 9th, it's over 140, maybe about 142. So it's lost half its value. But then by, let's see, when does it come back? By April 5th, it's pretty much back to its pre-war level. And in fact, since then, it has continued to appreciate until it's, uh, it, it hit its height around oh, about 57 or so. Uh, and at last count, which was just a few days ago, uh, it was around 62. So absolutely, the turnaround has to be attributed to the actions that the, the um, uh, Russian government took in, in direct defense against what the West was trying to do in trying to you know, ruin their financial system. And they said, well, no, you're not going to destroy the ruble because we have a few tricks up our sleeve. But yes, absolutely. That was the, that, that was the uh, line of causation. And it only took about well, three months, at most two months. Uh, to get it back to where it was to start with. Yeah. So would you say that sort of like the requirement for some parties to have rubles for this specific reason sort of, I don't know, created a liability that you might say sort of cascaded outwards to other members of the economy and then even a little bit in the international economy? Um, say that again, Jonathan. Would you say that this this liability cascaded outwards not only to other members of the Russian economy, but also to certain oh, parties in the international economy? I, I think I see what you're saying. In, in terms of if I'm holding rubles and I'm in Tokyo, uh, I am nevertheless, you know, w during the initial collapse, that I am nevertheless uh, seeing my you know portfolio decline precipitously in value. That aspect of it. That aspect of it, and then when the requirement was set in to pay for rubles, if you were in Tokyo and you had some rubles, you now had a buyer for those rubles. Right, right, yeah. right. Yeah, no, I, that, that certainly saved people other than the Russians, uh, you know. But I don't know how much international trade, and I didn't look that up before we got in here, I don't know how much the ruble is actually held as a reserve currency or as an uh, investment um, elsewhere. I assume more so than one might expect because of the oil and gas, but, but uh, you know, certainly not like the dollar or the euro, no. uh, something like that. But yeah, what, absolutely helped them as well. What, what are those databases where you can view sort of currency change of a particular currency, but from specific places? It's really hard to figure some of this stuff. They have a triannual survey, and I can't even remember who does it right now, but a triannual surveys, and they check once every three years, in the month of April to see what the currency trade uh, composition is. You know, what's the most popular currency? What, uh, how is it being traded and so forth? 
and they only do that once every three years. Uh, so for that reason, so you try. Uh, for that reason, it's actually pretty hard to come up with these data. That is frustrating to hear. Uh, I'm, I might email them and tell them to do that a bit more often. <laughs> oh, here it is. The Bank of International Settlements. That's who does it. The BIS. Okay. Yes. That, that, it makes sense that they would do it. They have right, one. right. And the last one was 2019. So that's the most recent one we've got. So I guess there's going to be another one, you know, um, this year. Yeah, it's been pretty much every three years, 2007, 2010, 2013, 2016, 2019. And it's such a massive market that it's hard to, you know, really get a clear sense. And, and a lot of these transactions are, it's not like imports and exports where, you know, I'm going to import a car from Japan and this is a several month process with a lot of bookkeeping and so forth. We can keep track of that. This is the biggest market on the planet and it's, it's in action continuously, which of course, and I know this is a question for later, makes it interesting that neoclassical economics does such a poor job of explaining the biggest market on the planet. You think that would be the best place where they were able to explain things, but in fact, it's really pretty poor. I mean, I think part of their inability to, uh, to explain that market is because they are viewing currency as commodities sort of that are valued almost primarily through scarcity and network effects. And they're not looking at it as a series of legal relationships that creates incentives that move upstream to downstream. But that's just my theory. Yeah. Yeah. Well, part of it is uh, a big chunk of it is that they tend to assume that the financial capital flows that take place are white noise or they are simply supportive of the transactions that are financing imports and exports. So they end up saying, well, currency prices are driven by imports and exports, when in fact they're they're not. And uh, I don't want to get into something that we may be talking about later, uh, so I won't say too much more about that, but it is surprising how poorly it's done. And I'd be glad to go on about that at length at some point. Yeah, no, we, we'll be getting to that soon. Uh, yeah. All right, so the last BIS triannual survey was in 2019. So they should right. be coming out with one based on this year's data, which would be right. happening around the same time as the switch we were talking about. That's so right. You're exactly right. That, that could be some interesting information. Yeah. Let's move on to the next question. So what might happen after the war if, uh, if Russians are allowed to import again? Presumably, some of them will be selling their rubles to get dollars, of, to get dollars and euros, which should put some downward pressure on the ruble. But if Russia continues this practice of requiring people to buy oil and gas in rubles. Should we expect the ruble to maintain at least some of its strength? Boy, that's a really hard question because we don't know how the war is going to end. You know, I mean, it depends on on the circumstances. Um, one possibility is that you know, if if the European countries are able to wean themselves of uh, Russian oil and gas as they're hoping to do, then you know, they're, they're buying elsewhere. So their demand for the ruble has dried up. And now we're talking about demand for the ruble coming from, you know, maybe smaller, I guess, uh, less developed nations. And um, I'm not sure it helps as much if you're, you know, exchanging, you know, rupees. Well, that's a big economy. But but uh, for, for, you know, small third world country to be trading their currency for the ruble, is it going to have as big an impact on the ex on the exchange rate in general as, you know, dollars or euros for rubles in order to get my rubles that I need to buy uh, oil and gas? So, I, yes, uh, and, and I'm not good at quick answers, but the quick answer to your question is, yeah, I think it would retain some of its value. 
but I still think it would it, it's going to suffer more, perhaps not from the end of the war, but from the EU trying to move away from Russian oil and gas. So that way the demand for the currency is gone. Yeah. All right. So it seems like this strategy of sort of forcing the demand for your currency only works for as long as you have something that they need to buy in, in your currency. And right. if they're able to move away, then that weakens the strategy. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. In, in any case, this did seem like at the very least a quick sort of short-term fix, um, sort of requiring foreigners to pay in your currency. Right. Uh, why don't we see more countries doing that? And what do you think would happen if they did? Well, you know, one problem is there's no unequivocal advantage to having a strong currency. Um, you have a strong currency, you can't export. It, you know, it, it means the price of everything that you export is going up. And so it tends to hurt your trade balance. So there's no there's no clear advantage to having a strong currency. In fact, there's a difference between the strong currency as a cause versus an effect, which I have a very difficult time getting my students to understand uh, that a strong ver currency as a cause, if we're talking about imports and exports, is a negative right? because you, you won't be able to, to uh, your citizens are more likely to import and you're less likely to export, which is going to hurt domestic employment as an effect. As the result of other policies, you're like, oh, everyone loves our currency. Isn't this wonderful? You know, our, our, our currency is so strong because people like what we're doing over here. So it can be a positive as a result of other policies, but it tends to be a negative with, with an exception, an important exception, but a, a negative um, otherwise. So the exception being if I need foreign currency in my country for, you know, in order to, I need hard currency. I need to buy stuff from other countries. I need to get foreign investment, that sort of thing. Then the stronger currency is good because foreign investors are more likely to say, "Sure, I'll, I'll buy into the Mexican economy. No, you know, no problem." Pesos seem to be pretty strong, so my my financial investment seems to be working out well. In that case, you want the stronger currency. But again, you know, why don't we see this more often? Well, you know, you touched on it earlier. First of all, I have to have something you want in order for this to be a useful strategy. If I'm going to say, if you want bananas from Colombia, you have to use, uh, and I don't know what the Colombian currency is, but let's say it's a Colombian peso, then, well, okay, I'll just buy bananas somewhere else. You know, I, I don't want to do that. A, and, and B, why do I want to drive up the price of my currency and make it harder for you to buy my, my bananas? So, you know, that's why not everybody does it, is that it's not a clear advantage to having a strong currency. Yeah, it's, it's a very sort of complex series of interactions where you have some positive effects and some negative effects from having a stronger currency. I, I was having a Twitter conversation a few weeks ago with a, a guy who was, uh, you know, someone who specializes in these sort of things. And I and he and let me let me break down sort of how he explained it to me. And so I, he was saying that if you are a an exporter, let's let's say you're, you're, you're a Russian exporter, you sell oil, but you're oil is priced in dollars and if the exchange rate goes up you know instead of getting you know it, it, but the price will, will stay the same as expressed in dollars. so if, if, it, right. if, if it's a hundred dollars a barrel for oil and that used to be 200 rubles per barrel mm -hmm. and then it goes down to you know let's say it's 50 rubles per barrel just use easy numbers then when you sell a barrel of oil, you only got 50 rubles, whereas previously you got 200 rubles. And if you have only 50 
rubles, you have 150 rubles fewer to pay your own employees who are expecting right. Right. payment in rubles for their salary and your suppliers and that sort of thing. And that's why it hurts you as an exporter. Is that, does that sort of comport with your understanding? Yeah, that's another aspect of it that I, I uh, wasn't bringing up, but you're, you're right. Ultimately at home, and this I actually talk about this in class, ultimately at home, I've got to pay my workers in Tokyo in yen. I, you know, they're not going to accept some foreign currency because that's not what they're going to be able to use at the store. Uh, so there's also that problem, especially if the commodity we're talking about is priced in somebody else's currency. Uh, you know, so that becomes another issue. By the way, I, I thought of something else with respect to holding currency values high. There's actually a lot of countries, developing countries over the last I guess 10, 15 years that have been intentionally driving down the values of their currencies in order to A, uh, export more and B, buy up foreign currency. So, you know, because if I take the Thai bot and I buy dollars with it, then that's going to drive up the value of the dollar relative to the bot, right? So uh, I, I'm the Thai government and I've bought, you know, uh, American dollars. So A, I've got some American dollars in my treasury, uh, which could be useful if there's a financial crisis. And B, I've driven up the value of the dollar relative to the Thai bot. I can export easier. My, my, my currency is cheaper. I can export easier. There's a number of, of, of especially Southeast Asian countries following the strategy in part because they felt like they got screwed in the post-financial crisis era that people like the World Bank, you're not looking out for me. Uh, you're looking out for the developed economies. And I need to look out. I, I finally decided I need to look out for me. So if there's another crisis, I want to make sure I've got some dollars and some euros in the treasury so we can take care mm -hmm. of ourselves. The re I, I learned all this. The fantastic economist I've known her for years, Eileen Grable at uh, – uh, University of Denver. Uh, she does all kinds of really good post-Keynesian development economic stuff. But but I, it's, it's, every time I read one of her articles, I, I, there's something else like, oh, I hadn't thought about that. that that's, that's really interesting. And one of the things she talked about is that uh, they've started forming sort of little local, I guess, organizations that, that are parallel to the World Bank, but that are going to worry about Southeast Asia and not about basically the United States and, and, and Europe. So in addition to the fact that there's no clear advantage to having a, a, a you know, high value currency, there's actually countries that intentionally pursue the opposite with the dual goal of one, making their stuff cheaper to buy to their, their bar, you know, increase their exports and two, to accumulate some, some reserves in hard currencies. That seems like a very difficult thing to balance where if you are selling your currency in order to drive it down, it drive it down its price to help your countries exporters more easily achieve you know profits you are you're you're decreasing the value of the currency in order to help people who are going to export which would in turn raise the value of the currency so you're, you're hoping that there's some sort of inefficiency whereby the amount that you decrease it intentionally isn't immediately offset and that they're able to gain more than the net change in value loss. I'm, I don't know if I'm explaining it quite yeah, well. Yeah, no, I know exactly what you're talking about because it's something that I had to explain to students and I really need a graph <laughs> to explain it properly. Because the point, I, I guess, I guess maybe here's an easy way to think about it. The amount by which I have caused my own domestic currency to fall in price is not going to be totally and completely offset by the increase in exports, thereby driving the price back up. It, it's impossible for that to happen unless you have a, uh, a demand curve that makes no sense whatsoever. So it's kind of like this. 
let's see, I have to use a domestic economy example uh, that, you know, if, if we lower the price of, of these, I'm using here a, a Uniball Signo Pen, whatever that is. So uh, this company decides to cut the price from a dollar to 75 cents. And then therefore there's an increase in the quantity of that pen demanded. The increase in the quantity of that, uh, of that demand is not going to drive the price back up 25 cents. All right? It's not going to drive it back to where it was or otherwise there wouldn't have been an increase in the first place. It, it's again, it's something easier to show on a graph, but that's, that won't happen. The amount by which the exports rise will not cause the value of the currency to increase so much that it you know, overcompensates for the initial depreciation. So that part's not a worry. And you know, the nice thing about driving your own currency down is it's much easier than the opposite. Because the opposite, you need somebody else's currency in the first place to buy your own currency. Uh, and there's limited quantities of that. But I have an unlimited quantity of my own currency. So I can use my, my own currency over and over and over to buy dollars and drive down the value of my currency you know, forever. I mean, it's almost an MMT thing Then that, you know, well, my money, I've got an infinite amount of that. And so it's easier to accomplish. So, but uh, it, it wouldn't cause the, the increase in exports is as a result of the fall in price. Um, it's the difference between a quantity demanded and the demand curve. But again, it's, it's much easier to explain on a graph, but, but it won't happen. <laughs> so right. that, that's not a worry. And what, what are the real outcomes in terms of resources available to your country that you're trying to improve specifically by driving the value of your own currency down? Well, of course, part of it is long run, right? Because they're just trying to accumulate some foreign reserves so that if something bad happens, then, you know, I have quick access to dollars and euros and, and whatever. I don't have to sit and wait on the World Bank to help out or whatever. In fact, as Eileen Grable explained, there's these, you know, sort of local organizations where they stand ready to Oh, uh, you know, Thailand is in worse shape than, uh, you know, I don't know, Indonesia. So we're going to funnel more money to them. It's not even just self-interest. It's self-interest in a, in, a, in a group sense. So that's the big goal. And otherwise, now you are making anything you import more expensive. So if there's something, you know, terribly important that you're importing, that to me is the biggest, you know, shortfall. That if we need oil and we're driving down the value of our currency relative to the dollar, then we're making oil more and more expensive. So this better pay off, you know, our increase in exports better be worth the fact that we're now paying more for oil. Uh, but again, you know, one of the big goals is just to have, and I don't know that they do this on a continuous basis, and she would be really the one to speak on this, but I would suspect is that they would target a particular, you know, exchange rate and then intervene as yeah. necessary to hit that one. All right. Now, sort of let, let's let's expand on what you talked about when you said that you wanted um or when these countries wanted access to those reserves to of hard currency use and mm -hmm. in, in an emergency. So, what is the difference between well, let, let's imagine there's there's two countries and we'll say hypothetically Indonesia does one thing and South Africa does the other. So, let, let's pretend that Indonesia devalues their currency a whole lot and then they're able to get a whole bunch of dollar and euro right. reserves to build up and they and they keep those in the nation's central bank they, they tax them away they do whatever so yeah you know when there's a, a crash that comes they can say all right we have a, a trillion dollars we can spend this on medical equipment or whatever right what is the difference between that and let's say south africa does the opposite strategy they, they enact you know all these policies to drive up the strength of the rand and the rand is now you know 
one rand for every hundred dollars and it's this incredibly yeah. expensive thing and let's yeah. say there's this you know this let's say there's a hurricane that comes and it just you know wipes out a bunch of south african infrastructure and they they need to to buy a bunch of stuff to to rebuild their country right. and the rand is super expensive what's to stop them from just saying like oh well we have this thing the rand that's incredibly valuable let's just sell a few of these and we just got back the same dollars that we otherwise right. would have got by following the Indonesian strategy. Well, the hurricane would have caused the RAND to drop pretty quickly. Uh, and so, you know, the, there's there's not going to be much of a time lag between the hurricane comes in and you can't like, you know, sort of dump all your RAND uh, very quickly for dollars in between. And, and that's one of the big problems here. If you're holding the RAND up, then you're probably doing so to attract this foreign money uh, as, you know, financial investments. The money's in your bank, but it's not in your central bank. But the money that's in your private banks can leave overnight. And that's, again, one of the things that Grable writes about a lot is that you're much safer in having these dollars. Let's say it's dollars in both cases. I forgot the other. uh, Indonesia. In the Indonesian central bank than in um, private banks in South Africa where people holding dollars have invested in South Africa because, you know, this fantastically valuable RAND. And so every time there's an increase in profits in RAND, it's really a much bigger increase in profits for me in in terms of dollars. But as soon as that hurricane hits in Indonesia, they've still got that money. But when it hits in South Africa, then uh, what that the, I hope I remember these numbers, right? Because I'm about to teach the class again in the fall, but I believe the peso lost 40% of its value in a week in the 94, you know, uh, financial crisis. And the bot, I, the Thai bot, I think was even worse in '97. Uh, so it's it's not going to be a strong uh, rand anymore once the hurricane hits and they really need this money. Is the difference? So it, it seems like you're saying that holding foreign currencies is a way of almost like diversification, where whereby if you held all of your own, it'd be almost like you know if you um, if you were a homeowner and you had your house, but you also invested money in you know a real estate investment trust whereas if a hurricane comes and destroys your house then all that money you put into improving it you know the the in-law slip suite that you built in the backyard that's gone whereas if you would put that money in the real estate investment trust maybe the the hurricane destroyed a few houses in the market but at least some of them which are giving value to your to your trust retain some of their value. Yeah, it might even be more like this, that you you didn't have that other money invested in other real estate. You just had it in a savings account because that's the way it's going to be for these countries is that they, they don't have it invested somewhere. It's relatively barren. I'm sure they're earning some you know rate of interest. But it's relatively barren, these dollars that they're holding on to. But that's okay, you know, because the trade-off is, but if something bad happens, they're not going to lose. You know, it's a whole risk-return trade-off that if something bad happens, you know, maybe the hurricane, uh, or I'm sorry, I forgot what the disaster was now with the house. Uh, but, uh, but whatever it was. a tornado that time. Tornado, okay, yeah. <laughs> uh, maybe the tornado only hit your house, and maybe it only hit a few houses, maybe it hit a lot of houses, uh, you know. And so the value of that trust is likely to go down, whereas – you're, but you probably had a much better rate of return before the tornado than somebody who's just holding it in, you know, as a CD or whatever. So that's what they're doing. They're they're banking on the fact that no, we're not getting much return on this. But by gosh, if something happens, we've got access to hard currency and, and a way to get out of this problem without having to uh, deal with the World Bank again. Oh, that makes a lot of sense, you know, because you're you're 
you're spreading risk, you're, you're, you're hedging, you're, but you're also doing some investment. And it seems like the, the balance to strike between all three of those is, yeah. is very, very difficult. And it's not clear that you could sort of point to any strategy out of context and say that it's the best one. That's true. And also in the aftermath of the financial crisis, no doubt what people thought was most important in those countries was to make sure that they had a safe source of you know, hard currency. Now that, well, because we had COVID now, but let's say COVID had never happened. As time passed, they may have decided, you know what? And this is a very common thing to happen in financial markets. Maybe we've been too careful about this. Maybe we don't need to keep hanging on to these barren, you know, relatively barren dollar bills in our central bank. And uh, maybe we should just be, you know, investing in other real estate, you know, kind of going back to that, that domestic example, because as time passes, the sense of, of worry from these disasters goes down. It's like, you know, Minsky, the post-Keynesian economist talks about that people uh, that, that, oh, what is the expression? Uh, stability creates instability. That the longer the uh, economy is stable, then the more people tend to put their their balance sheets in a precarious position because they figure, well, you know, what, I've been an idiot uh, in the risk return trade off. I should be going more for the you know high return, high risk because so far it hasn't been very high risk. So who knows? It, you know, short of COVID, if this hadn't happened, whether or not this whole strategy would have been shifting by now. Again, Eileen is the one to ask about that because she really knows a lot about it. Yeah. One more thing. Let's go back to sort of our example of our Russian oil exporter who has less revenue in rubles but needs to pay his employees and suppliers. What, mm-hmm. what is stopping the Russian government from just stepping in and saying, hey, the ruble's twice as valuable. Now you have less income. So we're going to compensate you for the loss attributed to the increase of the value of the ruble. Uh, they could. Um do you mean as opposed to holding the value of the ruble up now and doing that instead? Or oh, no, I guess I guess what I'm saying like is like if the problem from the perspective of I don't know why I just did air quotes. No one can see this. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, if the problem is that private enterprises don't have as much income in rubles because the ruble is so valuable. That seems like a rather easily solved problem from the perspective of a government that wanted to intervene in such markets. But I guess where I'm confused is, so why wouldn't they have as much income with the ruble high? Because if, uh, if they're selling something that's priced in dollars. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. whereas previously it was 200 rubles a right. barrel and it goes down to 50, but the dollar price right. is still 100. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, I think that, um, well, that, that's why they said you have to pay, you know, you're going to have to price in rubles now. And I, I would suspect um, one way or the other, they want to make sure that their oligarchs, you know, ha- have the money that they need. So you can do it one way or the other. Uh, I don't suspect it makes too much difference. I think the reason for targeting the value of the ruble in general, though, of course, was to show that the Russian financial system hasn't been you know, destroyed by these sanctions. In fact, mm-hmm. uh, we're actually even stronger. So yeah, if somebody's running short of cash or whatever, what was it I just read the other day? Um, that they were giving people some sort of bonus in, in Russia uh, because of the you know, financial difficulties. But yeah, I mean, that, that's easily done. Um, now, whether or not there's enough goods and services out there to buy in the first place is, is a different question. So yeah and it, it seems like it could be a strategy that 
non-oligarchic countries could use, you know, if, you know, if it was Mexico and they wanted to, and they, they wanted to protect the producers of, let's say, let's say it's not even oil. Let's just say it's, you yeah. know, um, you know, cars or even, you know, it's something other than Mexico, something else that Mexico makes in, in decent amounts. And they were saying, oh, the value of the peso is going up and the Mexican government could say, you know, we want to protect this car manufacturing industry because it's important for us to have sort of that level of industrialization. So we're just going to compensate exporters for some percent, some percentage loss in their revenue that's attributed to, attributed yeah. to the increase in value of the peso. Yeah, yeah. I feel like the, the major opposition to that would be ideological in terms of people not wanting the, the mm. state to intervene in this way. Right. No, I don't think that would be, uh, I think that would be easily done. I, I guess you'd have to do the math, if you know what I'm saying, to figure out, okay, but if we increase over here, how much did that decrease over here and so forth? And if it's not terribly significant, then we don't worry about it. And if it is, then we, we create, you know, different incentives by giving people different, you know, rates of return and so forth. Yeah, it. Yeah, that's it, certainly something to think about. It seems like it, it it could very easily be done from a from a perspective of, you know, can we issue the currency? The question is, you know, more about like, like you were saying, like, are are we doing it in, in such a, an, an appropriate amount of return? Right. You know? Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's an an empirical question. You know, how much is this going to impact relative to what if we don't do anything relative to yeah, like that. Yeah. And you're right. It probably would end up being ideological, or, or in terms of who has the most power uh, in the country to, to, you know, sort of push a policy that benefits them more. Yeah, I mean, ideally, you you you'd love to see something where it was like a a formula that was sort of a, sort of applying to all the exporters and not just right know, one sort of special interest group, you know, getting one off payments. Right. Which is unfortunately how these things often come when you're looking you're looking at subsidies, but yeah, it seems like in theory it could be done in a fair way. But yeah, all right. Why don't we go on to the next question? Yeah. So we we've seen that the international community needs oil and gas, and they're somewhat willing to buy rubles at elevated prices if they're required to do so. Right. But is this true or could this be true of other goods and services? Could a country like South Korea say, if you want to buy semiconductors, you have to do so in yuan? And what would that do to the yuan? Yeah, uh, again, it, it's a question of what am I getting out of this? You know, as South Korea, what do I gain from doing this? I'm going to tick off some people who have been, you know, my customers potentially. And uh, I actually kind of liked having the dollars come in, you know, so, you know, we're, you know, we're in a special position, of course, in the United States, having the world reserve currency. So now I was thinking about that earlier when we were talking about the, the situation in, in Russia that, gosh, uh, you could, the, the banking system in, a, in another country is going to have no problem whatsoever accepting dollars. Uh, and, and so... So that's that's one side of it. You know, what do I gain by by you know? And then why do I want the uh, the wand to be higher? Is that is there something you know? Presumably, you'd want cheaper imports, I guess. Yeah, it makes it harder to export. Although you're, yeah, it makes it harder to export. Uh, Although so, if you're the only country making semiconductors, maybe you, maybe that isn't as much of a concern. Yeah, yeah. No, uh, 
you know, there's political ramifications too. And, and so certainly it's something to think about, but, you know, then you do create a long run incentive for other people to get into the same industry as you and compete with you that might not be there otherwise. I just don't know that, that, that South Korea has enough reason to bother. But Russia absolutely did. Russia definitely needed something to make sure that the ruble didn't collapse. Well, it did. It, it collapsed and then, and then it came back again. So, and they had very clear evidence that if we don't do anything, we're going to have a, a, you know, a currency crisis on our hands. South Korea doesn't really have much of an incentive to, you know, to, to worry about that, that if a similar sort of situation arose, then clearly we have a roadmap for how to take care of it uh, from Russia. Again, if you have something that's difficult to get from anywhere else. Otherwise, I just don't, I, I just don't see a big reason for South Korea to bother. They're doing okay as it is, and uh, they, aren't, they aren't in a position of desperately needing to support their currency. It, it seems like we sort of have like a, a spectrum of development whereby some countries can benefit from you know, very restrictive policies and what their currency is used for and others yeah. don't need it as much because their economies are, are so developed that they are able to get, you know, income and able to spend, you know, yeah. on the things that they need. Yeah. And th that's actually an area, uh, you know, I have a, a book on exchange rates um, that I just, I just dealt with developed economies. Uh, that That's all I was interested in. One of the great things about my job is the only thing I have to write about is stuff I'm already interested in to start with. But then there's been another literature that's come up in post-Keynesian economics after that, all about currency hierarchies and so forth. And the question becomes much more complicated when we're not talking about, you know, pounds, sterling and dollars, but instead we're talking about, you know, pesos and dollars. And the considerations are, are much more complicated because as things stand, the peso, the Mexican peso is pretty far, you know, not, not at the bottom, certainly, but, but well lower down than the dollar and the euro and the yen and so forth in terms of the international hierarchy of currencies. Uh, the, the dollar earns a premium just because it's what you can use you know, in an emergency or whatever, that, that we're the world reserve currency. I'm not sure I answered that question well at all. So <laughs> No, I think you did. I think you know, the, the thing that you know, I, I'm, I'm starting to take away from this conversation is that you do have sort of these hierarchies, but the things you can do to move from one stage to the next, it's not always the same thing. Like to get from, you know, if, for to say for the sake of simplicity, there's like five levels. Like the thing you would yeah. do to get from level one to level two is not the same thing you would do to get from level two to level three. Right. That's a very good way of thinking about it. Yeah. 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 As a matter of fact, one of the things that's talked about within that literature is that when we're talking about the dollar versus pound sterling, you know, can we change the capital controls that are on those two currencies? Well, there really aren't any capital controls to speak of. Can we, you know, end up, uh, oh gosh, now I'm trying to remember exactly what the equation is. Uh, capital controls, interest rates, oh, and, and liquidity preference. Um, whether or not you want to hold that currency or not, well, there's not that much difference in the dollar and, and the pound, to, you know, to be honest. I mean, obviously the dollar's ahead, so maybe we count that as level five and the pound at level four. And maybe it changes the incentives too. Hey, at level four, I'm in good shape. So there, there's not as big an incentive to try to get from four to five as there is from say one to two. So that's interesting. I hadn't thought about splitting it up into different levels like that. I'm going to do a new edition of my exchange rate book and I may incorporate that idea. Oh, fascinating. Yeah. It'll be probably 
four years from now, something like that. But anyway, so, uh, and Jonathan thought of it. Ooh. <laughs> uh, all right. It seems like not only are there sort of diminishing returns from one strategy to the next, but there are also different types of trade-offs going from one strategy to the next. It seems like, you know, to sort of return to things that we've talked about, if the UK wanted to get from level four to level five, and they said, all right, we're going to require that everyone convert things, their money into pounds before they buy, that might push them up a little bit, but it would be at the expense of certain private sector actors who wouldn't appreciate it as much. And that could have other sort of non-currency effects that... Or it could push them down to level three. I mean, you know... Yeah, it could backfire. It's true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Because if you start putting capital controls on, then we're like, yeah, we're out of here. With Russia... Mm -hmm. It's paying off in the short run, at least, but but that's a difference from you know a lower level down. Then yes, indeed, that that strategy might work to get you from two to three, but it ain't going to get you to five. That, that's not going to cause the people in the world to think, oh, now I want the pound to be the world to be my reserve currency, the the thing I hold in in um, you know reserve in foreign currency, when there's all kinds of capital controls on the pound. I'm not going to do that. Uh, so yeah, that's very interesting. One of the the theories that I have that I've, I've written about in my article where I discussed the, the cool stuff hypothesis is that part of what moves or part of what distinguishes currencies among this spectrum is what's available for sale in those currencies. Right. It, it seems like the desire for someone to hold on to one currency would be greater if the sort of rarity, complexity, and volume of the goods leaving that country Right. We, we're different. You know, we've talked about countries like the U.S. and South Korea and Germany. And th- these are countries that uh, computer equipment, planes, you know, medical equipment, that sort yeah. of stuff. It seems like they have a lot more ability to use some of these strategies to move themselves up. Whereas country like... Um, yeah, an, an agricultural exporter that, you know, I can get that, I can get those bananas... 10 different other countries. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, what you're going to do is really going to drive me away from your economy. I'm just going to go and buy those bananas somewhere else. Whereas I can't get that supercomputer anywhere else. You know, you're one of the few sources to actually get it. So, and and of course, in that case, you don't really need to do much to, you know, work your way up because that in and of itself is what's going to push you up at the top, that you have a a good or a service that, uh, you know, and it can be a primary good too. It can be oil, uh, obviously, as we've seen, but, that's one of the many things we talk about in economics class is that, you know, developing countries are screwed on so many levels. One of them being that they're selling most of the time they're selling things that I can get somewhere else. So, you know, especially, you know, agricultural goods. And yet what neoclassical economics told them for years and years was that's OK. That's your comparative advantage. You know, go ahead and pursue that. Let the free market decide. And what the free market decided was that their economies weren't very um valuable to the rest of the world and you're still going to stay less developed because it is not true that you're selling bananas somehow attracted this capital that then built supercomputers in your country too. So how, what, what is a country to do, you know, if, uh, if they are a banana exporter and they want to start moving up this, this chain, because it seems like ostensibly every country wants to go from exporting bananas to exporting supercomputers, but only a handful of them have been able right. to. You know, so what are, you, what are your what are your thoughts on that? What 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 have, what have we learned 
and by we, I mean the listeners, because I feel like you, you've known most of the stuff we've talked about already. What have we learned today that we can apply to a country like, um, you know, Ghana or Kenya that, you know, maybe yeah. exports more agriculture and wants to start doing more advanced manufacturing? Well, th that's a deep question. And, and I would want to go into institutionalist economics to think about, you know, the, the, the institutional structure uh, of these countries to start with, because in a lot of places, what well, we say Kenya, for example, one of the huge problems is that, of course, the Europeans drew the borders in places that were convenient for them. And they ended up slicing off different power groups in that, uh, you know, different tribes, basically, in that area that don't necessarily view themselves as Kenyans first. And I don't know any tribal names in, in Kenya, but at any rate, whatever they are, uh, you know, that my loyalty is to this tribe. I, I explain it to my students as, what if aliens came to the planet Earth and they, they, did, you know, they divided it up for themselves like European colonizers and uh, they sliced off a portion of Canada, the United States, and Mexico to make a new a new country, a new colony, and then they leave, and we, we have this you know, you know legacy of behind, and some Canadian gets elected president. I don't trust Canadians. Never trusted Canadians. You know, so you don't have the support of the Mexican and the American people because they have this long tradition of I'm a Mexican or I'm an American, and not I'm a you know whatever the alien name is for for, for our new country. So this happens you know a lot, and of course the problems of development in Africa are different than the problems of development in Latin America and, and so on. But uh, in you know in Africa this happened a lot to where I remember I had a conversation with a taxi driver. So okay, this may not be the most reliable in the world, but we were talking about development in Africa, and he was saying you know the terrible thing is that. If somebody from, from, from this tribe gets elected to parliament uh, and they decide, you know, doggone it, I'm going to work for Kenya, they're going to be viewed at home, you know, in their home tribe as an idiot. And furthermore, as that's not why we elected you. We wanted you to make sure we got more than everyone else because it, it's a, um, an atmosphere in which we're all competing for these resources. And I expect you to compete for us. So obviously every country has some of that going on. Mm -hmm. And I just I just bring that up as an example of, man, once you start talking about development, I'll say two things about that. One, I've written maybe two papers on development, one on Jamaica and one on um, Mexico. It was so depressing that I never wanted to do it again. And yet, as a mainstream economist once said, once you start doing development economics, nothing else really matters. And his point being that who cares if the U.S. went through a recession? That's no big deal in terms of world welfare, in terms of the lives of, of you know, billions of people all over the planet. The fact that the U.S. went through a recession is a minor economic event, except to Americans, relative mm -hmm. to the lives of people in sub-Saharan Africa on a regular day. You know? And so development should be the main focus of the economics discipline. And I thought, wow, that makes me feel really bad because I decided you know, not to pursue that. And, uh, and that's absolutely right. So, uh, A... It's complicated uh, and the problems are going to be different everywhere. But B, I think I do have an example of a country that that people might not think of. You can think of th things like Korea, where they, they did target particular industries and it eventually paid off. But somebody, a country that people might not know about as, as much is, is Brazil. And I'm, I'm taking this from a, a class I took uh, undergrad years ago, but I thought this was so interesting. After World War II, the winners all had these massive arms industries. And for the U.S., okay, that, that's not a problem. But for, for the U.K., it is. The U.K. really can't afford an arms industry just to arm the British Army and the Royal Navy and the Royal Air Force. They can't afford it. So they need to export. 
right? So there, there was this, you know, arms trade on a completely different level after the war for those countries like France giving uh, or selling Exocet missiles to Argentina, you know, before the um, Falklands War. The Brazilians refused to take it. They developed their own arms industry. I mean, I'm sure they imported some stuff, but they're like, no, and our armored personnel carriers aren't going to be as good as we could get from the, you know, from the British or the Americans or whatever, but we're going to have our own people who know how to do it. And there's going to be benefits from that in the long run. We're going to have our own technicians and our own scientists and so forth. And you know, I think relatively speaking, I don't know that we point to Brazil as, as, as a beacon of freedom and democracy right now, uh, but nevertheless, they've done you know, r- relatively better because they planned it. All right? And this is something, of course, that mainstream economics would say you should never do. Just let the market decide. No, 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 no. They planned it. They said, no, it's more expensive, but the long run goal of developing an industry that can you know, deal with these kind of problems is, is worthwhile. That was a, a long answer and absolutely inadequate because the, because the question is so complicated, but um, I would say it's possible. Right. No, I, I appreciate your, your bringing up that example. With regards to the question of whether something is worth it despite being expensive, do economists who are looking at the balance of payments place too much emphasis on the question of whether or not there's a current account surplus or deficit. You know, as MMTers like to say, the deficit is can be evidence of a external desire to save. Yeah. So I, although I, you know, I tried to when I, when I was writing my article, come up with a way to measure, you know, external desire to save, and I I, I wasn't able to do it. I didn't have access to. Yeah. Uh, the information uh, to even sort of formulate a theory other than to say, you know, you could take some sort of, you know, international survey, but what what are your thoughts on sort of like the net desire to save an external currency? Well, let me go back to your, uh, something you brought up at the beginning of that. And that was, uh, you know, mainstream economics looking at, you know, imports, exports and the balance. There's so much of, of neoclassical economics is oriented towards the idea that, the system automatically generates balanced trade. The system automatically generates full employment. The system automatically. So, so they're all about the market system fixes these problems on their own if you step back and don't interfere with the market system. So, for example, and, and this is something I mentioned earlier, that mainstream economics tends to focus on the trade balance as the key to understanding exchange rates. All right? uh, they, they emphasize that that's the main force, and, and it's not. But what if it is? If it is... The U.S. has a trade deficit with respect to China. So therefore, we are buying more you know, Chinese yuan than they are buying of dollars. So therefore, their currency appreciates relative to ours until the trade deficit goes away. All right. So you know, the, what they end up focusing on is that, well, don't worry, it, it'll, you'll tend towards balanced trade. Don't worry, Brazil. If you just let the market decide, then um, what is it? The real, I think, a Brazilian currency... Uh, if, there, if you have a trade deficit, well, then that means no one wants your currency, relatively speaking. Um, you're obviously exporting something. And everyone wants, let's say, the dollar. Well, then the dollar will appreciate relative to your currency, and then that will eventually cause the trade trade to be balanced. So, so they don't even worry about it a- at all because they figure, you know, well, if you leave the market alone, then it will generate balanced trade, and we don't have the problem of potentially our 
trade deficit, meaning that we don't have full employment because it's draining away demand from our own economy. So that's kind of the direction I would go with all that. It's not so much the savings part of it as I think about their explanation of the exchange rate, just like their explanation of the domestic macroeconomy, it ends up assuming away what's in the real world a huge problem. So that's, you know, kind of the way I would go with that. Right. So they're viewing... I'm sorry, they're, they're viewing a trade deficit as evidence of some sort of improper uh, manipulation of the market. Yeah, or, or that the market hasn't had time to fix it yet. That, but yeah, sometimes there's an improper manipulation like those uh, Southeast Asian countries that are buying up dollars in order to drive down their currency to generate a trade surplus. Or uh, a trade deficit for the U.S. is an indication that the dollar is overvalued. All right. And so it should depreciate. And if it doesn't, then somebody must be manipulating the currency. That's right. Yeah. And, and you would say that that those assumptions about what a deficit evidences are, are, are incorrect. That is exactly right. The currency market is driven by financial capital flows. It's not driven by trade flows. Trade flows are... At worst, about 1.5% of global currency trade. And even if we take into account the fact that each transaction that I undertake to do an import or an export may, may generate other transactions to cover that previous transaction, let's multiply it by 10. At best, trade flows are 15% of all currency trade. So I wonder what the other 85% is. Wouldn't that be logically where we would want to focus our attention on the other 85%, which is financial capital flows? Thank you.
Today's part four of a six-part series with Texas Christian University economics professor and cowboy economist, John Harvey. Parts four through six are also the first main interview of activist MMT hosted by someone other than me. Today's guest host is my own former guest, MMT researcher, Texas lawyer, and PMPecon.com author, Jonathan Wilson. Jonathan and I spoke in episodes 106 and 107. This three-part interview with John and Jonathan is wide-ranging and in-depth. They start by discussing the difficulties nations face managing their currencies, such as during major conflicts, natural or man-made disasters, and in the global south. They also discuss these things from the perspectives of holders of various currencies, both in and out of a country. In part two, they continue this conversation. In the second half of part two, John gives his extended thoughts on a recent critique of MMT by Drew Metz and Feister. Finally, in part three, they focus on some of the core assumptions and ideology of mainstream economists. They also discuss how some assume inflation to always be caused by too much demand and too high wages, despite clear empirical evidence that it's caused by something else. You'll find links to many resources, as mentioned by John and Jonathan, throughout these three parts in the show notes. And now, on to Jonathan's conversation with John Harvey. Enjoy. 